because usually I don't have a chance to really understand what I'm going to be speaking about until after the deadline for the bulletin. Uh, it's simply entitled this morning, Beautiful Savior. And as you can imagine, it's about Jesus Christ. Um, I ask that, uh, that we pray here as we begin. Father in heaven, we are thankful for Christ, who is the reason why we are able to meet this morning. We meet under your name, and we meet because of, Lord, what you have done for us. We ask in this hour, uh, Lord, that your spirit would be upon your people, that you would empower your word to affect the lives of the people here. We thank you for the living word, who is Christ. And we ask, Lord, that all things that are done would be done to your honor and your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. How important to you is the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he mildly important? Is he very important? Is he the most important person in your life? How important is Jesus Christ to the world? Is he important at all to the universe? I would venture that most Christians would say that he is indeed very important to them. Most would probably agree that he is the most important person concerning the large things in life like keeping the world operating and the universe maintained. Ultimately, our opinion of the importance of Jesus Christ is moot. The real question is, is Jesus important to God? And I dare say that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. This morning, I would like us to stop and consider the person of Jesus Christ. My hope is that we as a church would have a greater understanding of who Jesus is and a greater appreciation, if it were possible, of him. You know, as Christians, we have taken his moniker as part of our identity, we are Christians as we follow him. We desire to be like him. We follow and hold to his teachings. We obey his commandments. But who exactly are we representing? If we do not know him as we ought, we have taken a name that means something very different than what we believe. God has spent great time and energy writing his word, the Bible, so that we would have a guide through this life. Who is this Bible about? The quick answer is God, and technically you are right if you say so. The Bible is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. From the beginning to the end, from Alpha to Omega, from the time of the patriarchs, through the church of Laodicea, all of scripture is about the Son of God Almighty. I would like us to ask ourselves these questions as we look at these very small studies of the personhood of Jesus Christ. Number one, do you know this Jesus? And number two, do you love this Jesus? Brethren, we must take all of Jesus or none of him. God has not offered us a buffet that from which we pick and choose what we like about Jesus Christ and leave the less desirable parts of who he is behind, if there were such a thing. Anything less than the scripturally revealed Jesus Christ is a false God and is no savior. That kind of Jesus is worthless, and worse yet, he is damning in nature. This is not a comprehensive study. If it were, we would be here for a very long time, since we would have to start in Genesis and end in Revelation, were we to be thorough. No, this message is to remind us that all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ and if we want to know him and in turn worship him, 
and love him, then we had better be constantly digging into the precious word of God to learn more about the inexhaustible subject that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The identity of the Lord Jesus Christ as the uniquely begotten Son of God has been doubted by people in the past as well as now. And I'm sure it will also be doubted by those in the time to come. But it is this truth of Jesus' existence that has transcended time. All other titles, roles, and offices come after this one important truth about Jesus. Jesus is the special, unique, one-of-a-kind, solely begotten Son of God Almighty. No one else can lay claim to this title. No one else can aspire to become this type of Son of God. God does not turn his creations into little Jesuses. We will be like him someday, but not in this exact relationship that he has with his Father. Jesus does not share this title with anyone. It is uniquely his, and it will always remain thus. For those who claim that Jesus was once a mere man with no divinity and was elevated to this position of being in very nature God, deny this special truth concerning the Savior. No creature can become the creator. It is impossible. Jesus was not created and therefore is not a creation. Now, a body was prepared for him, according to Hebrews 10, verse 5. But that was not the beginning of Jesus Christ. Jesus is present at the dawn of creation. John 1, the first three verses reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And Jesus is before creation. John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God loves God. And therefore, God the Father loves God the Son. John 17, 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. John 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Is this a difficult concept for us to understand? First of all, any love we may give or receive has its origins in the love of God. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. And so love, like so many other redeemable qualities that humans have, finds its very definition in God. God is love. He is the embodiment of the trait. God loves his son so intensely that we cannot grasp this relationship. Do you think that we have that we as fallen beings love anyone as well or as deeply or as completely as God the Father loves his uniquely begotten son? No, I would dare venture that our love is rather shallow by comparison. 
Even in our best demonstrations, God's love makes our ideas of love look like hate. Think of our own relationships with one another. How tenuous is the bond of love between people? We're fickle. And our demonstrations of love depend greatly upon the actions of others. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 <laughs> Do we love our children? Why do you suppose we love our children? Do we love them simply because they are our offspring and we are genetically hard-coded to love them? Brethren, we love our children because God loves his son. Remember, we have been made in the image of God himself. This is something that he shares with mankind, albeit in a limited capacity. We think that our love for our children is rather strong. Yet, we do not have to do much research to find accounts of children being disowned by their parents or children being emancipated from their parents. Jesus is not like us in this regard. He is not simply made in the image of God, the Father, as Adam was. The writer of Hebrew tells, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews 1, the first three verses. There is only one begotten Son of God. He is unique in his being and his relationship to God the Father. And when we talk about being children of God, which is a name given to us by God himself, we must remember that we are not children in the same manner as Jesus is to God. No, again, we are creatures. He is creator. We are adopted into his family. Jesus is true kin to God, if you will. Therefore, at our created best, we are still immensely far away from the nature of our adopted father and eldest brother. As we continue our study this morning, we must always remember that God the Father immensely and intensely loves God the Son. It is the motivation for the action of God throughout time. There is also a specific reason that God the Father loves God the Son. John 10 verse 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. We know that this reason is actually a willingness to do the Father's will. There is submission in this statement. And we'll look at this a bit later. But for now, remember that the love that the Father has for the Son is built, at least in part, on the willingness of the Son to do the Father's will. Surely the love of God, the Father, for God the Son, would cause him to buffer his Son from the pain of this world. Being the omnipotent and omniscient God of the universe would allow the Father to assure a safe and peaceful life for his son on earth. I mean, that's what we would do for our own children if we had the chance and power. We do not like to see our children hurt. We go out of our way as parents to clear dangerous paths for our children. And if we fail, as we often do, we do our very best to alleviate the pain that comes. Pain is almost the most, un most undesirable thing to have in one's life, yet it is one of the most influential of life's instructors. At a very young age, we learn to stay away from things that cause us pain. A glowing hot stove element may look enticing to a toddler, but let that toddler touch it and pain shoots through the finger and a reflex snaps the damaged hand away from the danger. Pain keeps us from danger. We learn not to touch certain things. We also use pain and correction 
when we discipline our children, pain helps us associate danger with avoidance. We hope that our discipline causes our children to make better choices. Nonetheless, we try our best to avoid pain in general. Remembering that God the Father loves God the Son more than we can understand or experience, what do we make of Isaiah 53? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now we read a passage like this and we wonder if God the Father is indeed omniscient and omnipotent, why didn't he spare his son this terrible life? But there is something more in this text. Verse 10 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. He was put him to grief. Therefore, it was not a matter of lacking to exercise the omniscience or the omnipotence, but rather God used these qualities on purpose to bring about the suffering and ultimate death of his uniquely begotten son. The Bible says in Romans 8, verse 32, that God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. God gave us a picture of this sacrifice in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Genesis 22 recounts, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You know, I am very glad that Abraham was called to this test and not me. Apart from the empowerment of the Spirit of God, 
I would have desperately failed this test. I cannot fathom bringing fatal harm to one of my beloved girls. And yet, here is Abraham ready to plunge a knife into the chest of his son as God has commanded. There is another text that addresses this situation. And to my shame, it shows my love for God is still very much lacking. Matthew 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Abraham was not guilty of this. He had his priorities straight. God first, Isaac second. He also proved to be prophetic. When Isaac asked about the missing animal for the sacrifice, Abraham said that God would provide a lamb. That lamb was indeed provided, not by the ram caught in the thicket, but rather in the person of Jesus Christ. As we have already read, God did not spare his son. Instead of staying the sacrificial knife, God thrust it into his uniquely begotten son. There is no hesitation. There is no regret for God, for he does all things well. Why did he do this? How could he do this? God the Father did this out of love for the Son and for the love of something else. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know, we often think about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and that he willingly gave up his life to redeem his people's lives from sin and death. Do you think that a sacrifice was made by God the Father? Let's look at the account of Jesus' death, the Son of God. Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and, the, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Does it sound like God the Father has noticed the death of his Son? Does it sound like he is upset? Darkness, earthquake, rocks splitting, the veil of the temple so thick, ripped from top to bottom, and the dead are raised to give witness what did your redemption cost God? It cost God the Son his life. And it cost God the Father his uniquely begotten Son, whom he loves immensely and intimately. This role of God the Son as the man of sorrows is an, in an integral part 
of who he is. Jesus came to earth to live a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He also spent his time teaching people about his Father, both in words and in action. And his final act of obedience demonstrated the love that he had for his Father. This is the Lord Jesus Christ as the man of sorrows. Do you know this Jesus? Do you love this Jesus? Thankfully, there is more to the story than the horrific crucifixion and death of God's uniquely begotten Son. We read John 10, verse 17 earlier, but now we need to read the verses that follow. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The death of Christ was not a permanent one. This was obviously known to both the Father and the Son. So there was a plan before the event of Jesus' death. In fact, this plan beyond the death of Christ had always been the plan from the beginning. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Being seated at the right hand of God is a tremendous honor. It is a position of power and authority. And although the seating of Christ at the right hand of God, the Father, is symbolic of his finished work, there remains another role that Jesus Christ fills. It is the role of conquering king. This has always been the plan. Acts 2 verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Psalm 2 reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It is true that at this very moment, a risen Christ with nail prints in his hands and feet and a gash in his side is sitting at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the command to go. When he comes for the second time, he comes not as the suffering servant, but as the conquering king of kings with an iron scepter. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God." And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the victorious Christ. When he comes for the second time, he will not be bringing grace and mercy. Rather, he will be bringing judgment and punishment. The day of grace will be over, never to return. The time for repentance will be gone for good. And the only thing left on the revealed timetable of God is the judgment of all, God, of all the people. Romans 14, verse 11. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. There is nothing lenient in his demeanor. He comes to make war with the rebellious nations of the earth. It has been decreed to be a one-sided engagement. My question is this. Where will you be? On whose side will you be on? This Jesus, once despised and rejected, once bruised and beaten, once scourged and pierced, comes not to destroy in some shallow fit of revenge, but rather as the embodiment of justice. He comes to pay to the rebellious their wages, and everyone will be paid in full. This Jesus is just as real as the man of sorrows. Jesus has been offered once and never again. We often hear ridicule concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ, but that's okay. When this occurs, we are witnessing the fulfillment of Scripture. 2 Peter 3, 3-10 Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Jesus will come again to rule and reign. Do you know this Jesus? Do you love this Jesus? I purposely skipped over this next section to address the conquering king first. Jesus is the son of God. He is also the man of sorrows. He is also currently loving savior. And one day will come again as the conquering king. We ought to praise God that we are living in the day and age that we are. We are living in the day of grace where Jesus has yet to move from his seat at his father's right hand. Jesus has said these things concerning himself in Matthew 11 verse 28. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. This part of who Jesus is remains a part of him throughout eternity. He was once a man of sorrows, but that time is concluded, 
and he will never be that again. Jesus, however, will always be the loving Savior. This title of Jesus causes us to remember the true intent of his ministry. This is the Jesus that, who is active in making relationships with the fallen people he has been sent to save. Do you know that for the plan of salvation to be complete, Jesus did not have to interact with any of us? He could have lived a perfect life before God and died as he did unjustly without ever having a group of disciples or ministering to the multitudes. This should also remind us, of course, that we had no bearing in the formula of salvation. But he also had a mission to reveal the Father to us. And at least as, and at least as importantly, he desired to be with us and teach us about God the Father. This fact teaches us that Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father cares deeply for their creations. God wants us to know about him. And also, more importantly, to know him. We cannot know what is unknown. Therefore, God in his love for us revealed himself to us that we might know him. Jesus loved the people with whom he interacted Jesus loved his disciples and cared for them. He had an inner three who were closer to him than the others. And even among the three, there was the disciple whom Jesus loved, namely John. Do you think that that moniker that John used for himself is something that he just humanistically came up with to describe himself? Or was that the name that God ordained for him, the disciple? whom Jesus loved. The loving Savior had compassion on the multitudes of people and miraculously fed them on several occasions. He had compassion on those who were suffering with ailments and diseases. He healed the sick. This loving Savior encouraged the little children to come to him, and he blessed them. Imagine that being blessed by Jesus Christ himself. This is the loving Savior who stands outside the tomb of Lazarus and weeps, even though he knows that in a few moments he will raise Lazarus from the grave. My, how he loved him is the reaction from the people who see him weep. This is the loving Savior that pardons the thief in that last hour of that man's life, even as he himself is in excruciating pain and misery, Christ chooses to love that convicted thief, justly being put to death for his crimes. This is the loving Savior who puts the great needs of the world before his own comfort, and he continues this office in glory. One day we will be with this loving Savior. Do you know this Jesus? Do you love this Jesus? What are we to learn from the study of Jesus Christ? I believe that we should, as his redeemed people, think more concerning his entire personhood and give him both the honor and praise for all that he is. Many people will praise him for being their savior without thinking about Christ as the man of sorrows. Others focus on him as conquering king to the neglect of his current role. Jesus, of course, embodies all of these roles as well as others we haven't discussed this morning. We need to search out the Christ of whom the Bible speaks so that we may worship him more adequately, more knowingly, and more accurately. Do you know that the study of Christ is so extensive that we cannot complete it in the short time we are given here on earth? We won't even finish this course in eternity that is to come. Some say then, why bother if it cannot be completed? <laughs> because Jesus Christ, the inexhaustible subject, is well worth the study. The greater our knowledge of him the greater our esteem of him, the greater our praise of him. Start now 
and continue studying him until you can be with him. Worshiping Christ for only part of who he is while knowing about his other roles and offices possibly leads to a false view of him. I've heard it said that people don't like talking about Christ's role as the suffering servant or man of sorrows because it makes them uncomfortable. They don't like thinking about the amount of suffering that he had to endure. Brethren, the amount of suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have been granted access to see through the scriptures is the exact amount that we are supposed to see as designed by God. His suffering is supposed to make us feel uncomfortable because that is what our sin has demanded. If his suffering was not an important part of who Jesus Christ is, it would not have been included by God himself in his word. The suffering he endured should have been our suffering. The pain he experienced should have been our pain. The shame of the cross, the curse of being nailed to a pole, exposed to all those who pass by to gawk, the humiliation of being executed next to common criminals, this should have been our lot. We need to embrace this part of who Christ is, not shy away from it. The plan of salvation required the horrific death of Jesus Christ, God's uniquely begotten Son. If there had been any other way to save sinners, do you think that God, who loves his Son greater than we love our own children, would have gone through with this sacrifice. We don't think about these things. We emote. We may entertain ideas that are grounded in logical thought. We inadvertently make God the Father into a monster capable of harming his own son for no good reason. Brethren, there was no other way. Our sin requires blood as payment. Our blood is not worthy enough. It is not valuable enough to cover our own payment. We need the precious, beautiful, and powerful blood of Jesus Christ to wash the black mark of sin from our lives. Only Jesus' blood is able to do this. Others like to neglect Jesus' conquering king. They may believe that Jesus may indeed have walked the earth, taught people about God, and eventually was executed unjustly. But to say that he rose from the dead and is coming again with judgment? That doesn't sound like the meek and gentle Jesus that they know and like. Nonetheless, this is exactly how he will be coming, with power and great glory. The fact that Jesus is portrayed as this mighty conqueror is there in Scripture to spurn us to action. If we are not right with God and we die without the precious blood of Jesus Christ covering our sin, we will meet this conquering King of Kings and our meeting will not go well for us. The countdown for his departure from the right hand of God has been moving since his resurrection it is the next major event in God's timetable. And therefore, we are one day closer to it today than we were yesterday. Every hour, minute, and second that passes is moving us closer to that deadline. Burying our heads in the sand and pretending we don't know about this part of who Christ is will not save us from the judgment that is to come. No. Rather, it will increase our guilt because we knew he was coming and chose to ignore the warning of Scripture to get right with him. Psalm 2 again. Kiss the Son. Make peace with God before he crushes you with an iron scepter. Still others neglect Jesus as the loving Savior and they do so to tremendous peril of their souls. The purpose of God's plan is to magnify the Son because of what he has done to secure the lives of his people and God's family. This is accomplished through the working of Christ as loving Savior. Well, I don't need a Savior. 
I'm a pretty good person. If this is your appraisal of yourself, take a long, hard look at the person of Jesus Christ. You will find a great deal of problems in your facade as you gaze into his perfect mirror. Your standard of good enough is not sanctioned by God. In fact, the only thing you or I or anyone is good enough for is entrance into hell. You're good enough for that. There you will meet countless people who thought of themselves as good enough. If you want to be included in glory, remove the word enough from your statement. Are you good? Jesus addressed this issue too. Mark 10, 17 and 18. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Our definition of good falls way short of God's definition. Every person who has ever lived, is living now, or will live in the future, needs a Savior. That's because every person is born into the kingdom of sin, and there is nothing good about us. But we can compare ourselves to each other, and we often do. And when we do, we may look good for a time, but it is not our evaluation of ourselves that God uses as he discerns our lives. It is his evaluation of us that matters. And of every single one of us, he has spoken that we have been weighed on the scales and have been found wanting. We need a loving Savior. One who does not charge us for his services. And this is exactly who Jesus is. And it is exactly what Jesus does. Isaiah 55, the first seven verses. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus has also said in John 6 verse 37 and following, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What could you possibly be waiting for? The gift of salvation is exactly that, a gift. It's free. God has procured for you a peace that will last an eternity with him. Call out to God to forgive your sin. Ask him for this free gift and do it now before he rises from his throne to come again. If you wait until then, it will be too late. We read Isaiah 53 as our scripture reading this morning. It was a picture of the man of sorrows. Let's close by reading Isaiah 9, the first seven verses. Isaiah 9, the first seven verses.
but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you know this Jesus? Do you love this Jesus? I pray earnestly that you do know him and that not only do you love him, but your love for him would increase each and every day. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, where our hearts have been cold because we have not spent the time necessary to look at this beautiful Savior that we have, I pray, Lord, that you'll forgive us first and foremost, but secondly, that you'll cause us to have a desire to learn more about Christ, Lord, that our love for him would increase and that we would praise you and worship you for who you are and what you have done. We ask this, Father, that you would send your spirit upon us that we may accomplish these things. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> 